The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, we thank you for the church. Lord, we thank you for the Savior that you've provided in Christ. And um, Lord, as we uh, open up your word this morning, as we look at what it looks, or when we look at it, what it means to walk in the new self, Lord, would you draw our eyes to you? Would you begin to work in our hearts to receive what your word has to say? And Lord, would you show us truly where transformation and change is found? Lord, you must do these things. We are dependent on you. So, Lord, we seek your grace. Lord, show us a new way, a new life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the modern age, we are bombarded by the project of the new and improved self. Everywhere you turn, we're being told, uh, sold something to enhance our body, to get us in shape, to live a certain kind of lifestyle, to eat a certain way, to become more productive, to look a certain way. And alongside our friends, our family, our colleagues, and the different stories that we tell, the hacks we share, the movements or the fads that we join, we are all in pursuit of a new and better me. We're looking for the new self. We're looking for the 2.0 version. And underneath all this, we see that there is a reality that we are discontent with something in ourselves. We are discontent with our old self, and we want something new. We want something different. And so the question is, is what does it look like to walk in the new self? And how do we move away from the old self? And the movement from the old self to the new self is a challenging pursuit. As we have tried to wake up day after day, pursuing something different, pursuing change, pursuing a new me. But the old self just seems to stick, to stay. Nothing has changed. In this, in this are we even sure that the new self we are pursuing is, is going to be worthwhile? Are we even sure that that new self that we think will bring happiness and joy will, will give that to us? So as we think about the, the new self and and what the world is saying to us about who we are, what we need to be, we're going to take a look at a passage today that helps lay out and look at what it is uh, to discover the new self and how we can walk in the new self. And so as I have opportunity to preach, um, I started a series a number of weeks ago in which we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4 and 5. And we're going to be considering the Christian way of life, the Christian walk. And in Ephesians 4 and 5, we'll see there's a number of passages that use this language of walk or walking. And so we're using each one of those passages to tell us what can we learn about the Christian life and how are we to walk in gospel realities secured for us in Christ. So last time I preached, uh, we looked at walking in God's calling. And ultimately, this idea of God's calling is the backdrop. That's the foundation for which all these other uh, passages come, come from. And so we need to understand, understand something about God's calling and direction of our life and how that empowers the rest of our walk. 
So this morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, and discuss walking in the new self. So if you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians in the New Testament, and we'll pick up in verse 17. Here's what it says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. So in considering this passage, I'm going to organize this message around two primary points. And here's the first point. We must no longer walk in the ways of the world. We must no longer walk in the ways of the world. So this passage opens up and we see a command here. And Paul says, now this I say to you and testify in the Lord. So Paul is saying something in his own apostolic authority but he's also testifying in the Lord. And so what we need to hear is this is not just Paul's opinion for wise Christian living, take it or leave it. No, this is a command that's coming from the Apostle Paul, testified by the Lord. This is a command coming from God. So we better listen right up front. What's the command? He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So as we jump into this, we've got to ask the question, what is significant about the Gentiles? What's significant about them that we must no longer walk as they do? So we need to understand something about how they walk before we can understand what not to do, right? And so Gentiles, if we're just jumping in the Bible and you have, you've never heard that word before, a Gentile, Gentiles are the non-Jewish, non-believing word, world. And the word Gentile here in, in the text comes from the Greek word ethnos, which means nation, people, family, tribe. And often Paul uses it to indicate those who don't come from a Jewish background. And it's not merely just an ethnic distinction, though the Gentiles in the church of Ephesus are certainly from a certain ethnic background, but more so it's a distinction of people who are without God, and more specifically people who do not have any concept of the historical biblical God. So what's significant about the Gentiles is that earlier in Ephesians, Paul goes to great lengths to communicate how God's plan, the mystery hidden for, the, from the, uh, hidden for ages, is that the Gentiles are also to be partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel of salvation. And this is a huge mystery that the gospel is not just for Israel. The gospel is not just for the Jews, but the gospel is for the Gentiles the rest, the remainder of the non-believing world. 
And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that God has made one new man in place of the two. So God has made one man, new man in, in place of just Jews or Gentiles. He's made one new man that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Gentiles are made fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see both Jews and Gentiles are written into God's salvation story. And this is important because when Paul says that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, it's not that God is against Gentiles per se, but it's that he's against their godless way of life. And so Paul is addressing the Ephesian church that is made up of a significant number of Gentiles. And that's why he goes to great lengths to show their inclusion in the gospel. But he also goes to great lengths to show them that this, something's got to change here. And so as he does this, this does not mean that there isn't any correction or input that's necessary to address Judaism. In fact, Judaism, apart from Christ, is also insufficient. But someone coming from the Gentile background brings with them some different contextual and cultural challenges than that of the contextual or cultural challenges of, of Jews. So as we come to this and understand who are the Gentiles, we see their inclusion in the church, what's so bad about them? What is it that we need to be careful of so that we no longer walk as they do? Well, Paul proceeds to tell us what it looks like to walk as a Gentile. And as you look at these descriptions, it's not a pretty picture. He says this. He says, Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. The word futility or futile means devoid of truth. They're perverse. They're depraved. They're short-sighted. They're futile in their minds. They don't know what is right and what's wrong. He also goes on to say that they are darkened in their understanding. They lack clarity. They lack light. There's a blindness to them. They don't see reality for what it is. And they're disillusioned with what is true, what is good, what is right. So on top of being futile in their minds and darkened in understanding, he goes on to say that they are alienated from the life of God. And by alienated, he means estranged, excluded, shut out. And we see that there's a separation or division that keeps them from right relationship with God. And we think about this as you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, that they were alienated, they were estranged, they were cut off from the life relationship and the life of God. They're cut off from his presence due to their sin and the rejection of God. So why, why are the Gentiles this, this way? Well, the text goes on and he says, why? Because of their ignorance that is in them. The ignorance, it's a moral blindness to truly see things as they are. And why are they ignorant? It comes down to this, because of their hardness of heart. They have a hardness of heart that refuses to acknowledge God as the creator and the center of existence. And they suppress the truth and the reality of who God is and how life was meant to function and work. So in short, apart from the grace and mercy of God, 
Gentiles are by, are by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And initially, we see how Paul tells us something of their inner reality. In verses 17 and 18, it's all pointing to something in their mind, in their heart, something that's inside of them. Who they are, how they function. But then he moves to their outer reality, their actions and their behaviors. And we see this in verse 19. Ultimately, it's the inner reality that shapes and directs the outer reality. So verse 19 highlights this. It says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So where it says they have become callous. If you think about the purpose of a callous, ultimately a callous keeps us from feeling pain. So when I was a young, aspiring youth pastor, I attempted to pick up the guitar like any you know, youth pastor would try. And the thing about learning the guitar is when you start, when you start playing, it, it hurts, right? You push down on those strings, you're like, I'm not used to it. this, hurts. The first days you, you try to play and you play and, and it hurts, you've got to come back. And ultimately, you need to build up a callus on your fingers so that you don't feel that pain, right? And so we see in one sense, you can think about callus in a positive sense right there, but there's also a negative sense to callus as well, and there's a danger of a callus. What happens with a callus is that when you build up a callus, you become numb to pain. You become numb to a problem and something or something that would tell us that there's a problem. And calluses, they grow, and they thicken slowly. If you've been playing the guitar for years, you know, just go shake, you know, Gary or Andrew's hand and say, can I feel your calluses? I know, that's weird. Don't do that. Um, that grows over time as they continue to play in a certain way. And if you're a novice like me, right, I build up a callus one day. You don't build a callus in a day. It takes time. And so it's something, so as, as we callous and we again, you know, we can think about that in terms of our body, but it tells us something of our spiritual condition. As our hearts, as our lives begin to callous, something that once bothered us, our conscience then becomes numb to, gradually over time. And where we were meant to be poked or prodded into feel something, we begin to feel less and less. And so what Paul is saying here is that Gentiles have become calloused. And this callousness leads to more significant and greater sins down the line. You can think about it with anger, right? Where there's anger and hate that starts in our heart. It then moves to maybe small microaggressions in our relationships with other people. And then if left unchecked, that might grow to violence or even murder. This is how sin begets sin and grows into something deeper and more problematic than once it started. There's a callousing of of the heart. There's a callousing of our soul that takes place. And this doesn't come out of nowhere, but it grows through the darkened understanding and willful ignorance in which one's estrangement and alienation from the life of God becomes evident. Our heart becomes hardened and set in its way. And we see that the internal reality is always reflected in the external actions in some way or another. And so in this context, Paul says that the callousing leads to a couple things. He says, one, that they have, been given, they have given themselves up to sensuality. 
And here, there's a willful participation that they themselves have given into. They've given in, and, and there's a personal responsibility. But they've given themselves into sensuality. Sensuality is, is their own comfort, their own, their own uh, desires, their own self-pleasure. And in this, the pursuit of self-pleasure is that with what the word starts, self. It's about self that forgets about others, forgets about the way, the impact that we have on life around us. And sensuality is a very personal, selfish pursuit. And they've given themselves up to this. But two, we also see how is this callousness being played out. He says they are greedy. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And this greediness leads to an impure lifestyle. It leads and and plays itself out in ways that maybe were once thought unimaginable. So something about the inner reality and the condition of the Gentile's heart then comes out in external actions that go against the way that God has created the world to function. So as Paul is talking about Gentiles here, and the ultimate idea is this, is don't live or walk like a Gentile any longer. For us today, this idea more easily falls under the label of, of worldliness. Right? So, you know, Gentile had a context, but today in the church, we just we can use the word worldly. And to be worldly is to live without regard for God, with a corrupted inner reality that plays itself out in impure and sinful outer reality. And this, what Paul is talking about here, ultimately leads us to what is a theology of the fall, our fallen condition, in which the depraved nature of man seeks to maintain the delusion that there is no God. And he lives in independence and autonomy from God, legitimizing, justifying in their minds and their hearts, doing whatever they want. And in all this is the delusion that there is not a problem when there is actually a real deep problem here. So as we get through all of this, we need to remember who the audience is here. The audience is actually not the godless Gentile. As if a Gentile can just stop being a Gentile. Rather, the audience is a Christian who is behaving like a Gentile. A Christian who is falling back into a godless and worldly mode of operation. It's easy for many of us to read a passage like this and only attribute this kind of living to those who are outside the church. To those who don't have God. And we're correct to do so because they're living without God. But in our own religious pride, we'd like to quickly make it a problem that is unique to someone else, unique to the other, unique to those outside the church. But here, Paul is not addressing Gentiles. Paul is addressing Christians, and this is challenging for us. So if you are a Christian who has been truly called by God, you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, you've been regenerated, made alive, and dwelt by the Spirit, you've been given a new heart that has made it possible to begin walking in obedience, then the question is this. Why in tarnation do you continue to live like a Gentile? 
Why? And we need to read and think about these descriptions, filtering them through our own lives and not just the lives of unbelievers. So let's do that. I'm going to run through some of these descriptions of the Gentiles again and ask some questions. And I, I want you to take a quick inventory of your own life as we ask these questions of ourselves. Not, am I Gentile, but am I behaving like a Gentile? And in what ways? And in this, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. So the point is that you, you don't need to write down and, and think about every way that you're like living like a Gentile. But if there's one thing that stands out to you in one of these questions, just grab onto that, hold on to that. And I think that will be helpful for you this morning. But here, here's some of these questions. Where is your living and thinking futile? Where are you living your life devoid of truth? Is your mind and thinking shaped by the worldly circles you surround yourself with rather than God's word and eternal truth? Where are you living darkened in your understanding, suppressing the truth so that you can maintain status quo in your comfortable, frivolous, thrill-seeking life, all the while neglecting the need for repentance? Are you alienating or estranging yourself from the life of God? Are you seeking life, purpose, meaning in the things of the world, ultimately robbing yourself of experiencing true life in God? Have you stopped experiencing God's grace and his love? Have you stopped hearing his voice? Have you lost the ability to discern his good and perfect will in your current season of life? As you seek the things, the pleasures, the experiences of the world, are you increasingly becoming calloused? Is your callousness leading you to an increasing drift? Has your conscience become dulled to things that you once found grievous or wrong? Do you find yourself perpetually won over to comfort, indulgence, sensuality, without any thought or any internal battle or resistance? Are you consumed with your own self-pleasure? Where do you find your heart greedy? How does your internal greed reveal and manifest itself in impure and faithless actions? We need to ask these questions of ourselves, not just today. We need to ask these questions of ourselves regularly to assess our life and our heart before God. The beginning point to no longer walk as a Gentile walks and the world walks is to be poor in spirit. It's to be devastated over our tendency toward depravity in such a way that the only person we are left to call out to is our Savior, Jesus Christ. The reality and end result of living like a Gentile, living worldly, is estrangement, alienation, exclusion from the life of God. Is that what you want? And this is what Paul wants to address by reminding the Ephesian church of their calling, of how they have learned Christ. He wants to see Christian walking as an image bearer in true righteousness and holiness, walking as a new person, as a new self in the likeness of Christ. And the only way to discover the truly transformed new self is not by looking at and living like the world, 
It's by looking to Christ. It is by coming into relationship with him and walking in that relationship. And that will, is what ultimately will lead us here to our second point. But the question I want to think about is you read through this list and you see that there are some tendencies in your heart, in your mind that are drawn to behave like a worldly person, a godless person. To ask the question, does that devastate you? Does that just break your heart? Does that raise an alarm and a problem in your life? And if the answer is no, you need to come back around because there's probably something calloused there. There's something that is not grieved and broken by your worldly pursuits. There's something that God needs to pierce through. So think about that for yourself. Are you grieved and broken by the ways in which you behave like the world? And this leads us here to our second point. So how we've talked something about the old self here, but now moving on to the new self. Second point is this. We must remember how we have learned Christ and walk in that reality. We must remember how we have learned Christ and walk in that reality. So verse 20 says this. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So, as we think about this old self that we're no longer to walk as, what does Paul do? He doesn't give us something new or different here. He says, do you remember what you learned? Do you remember the way that you learned Christ? He, doesn't, he wants to remind them of the way that they've learned Christ. And here we just need to pause for a second because in this, we want to comment on Paul kind of inserts a parenthetical comment here, right? So he says, remember the way you've learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What the remainder of this message is moving towards is ultimately only applicable for Christians. It might be that someone in the Ephesian church or someone here in this room or someone listening to the sermon online has not actually learned Christ. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to go back and look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where Paul lays out the gospel message and what it means to know Jesus and be given new life. So what we're going to say from here on out assumes that we have heard and we have been taught what is true about Jesus and his saving work. So if there's questions for you that you have about that, we want to talk about that. Our praying elder today is going to be up here after the service, ready to pray, ready to discuss. If there's something you're like, I don't know what it means to have learned Christ. We want, we want to make that clear because that's super important. And we'll answer that question here just briefly, but not giving it its full time that it deserves. But we have to ask the question, what is the way that they learned Christ? What is the way that we have learned Christ? What is it that Paul wants us to be reminded of? So to have learned Christ is to, learned, to have learned something of his personhood. We've learned something about the character, the heart, the holiness, the godhood, the compassion of Christ. 
There's something about his personhood that we need to learn and understand the truth of him. To have learned Christ is to learn something of his work, what he has done, how he has provided salvation through his death on a cross in our place so that we might experience the love of God and be adopted as his children, graciously given all things. To have learned Christ is to know who he is and his character and his personhood. We need to have learned something of his work, what he has done, what he has accomplished for his people. We also need to learn something of his calling, what he has promised to those who are his children, to what he is preparing them and going to deliver them to and grant them in a new heaven and a new earth. That's something that we've learned of Christ. But I think uniquely here, we need to, uh, one of the things we need, that we have learned is we've learned something of a relationship to Christ here. And the, and the language is interesting. It says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Normally we would put something like in between there. Normally, normally we would say, uh, that is not the way that you learned about Christ or you learned of Christ. But here it's just, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. And for me, this, this points to a personal, an experience, a personal experience or interaction with him. Something of who he is, not just about him. So that's another question for us to ask. Have we learned Christ in a way that we have experienced him? Not just do we know the facts and the data of you know, his attributes and his work, but have we learned him? Have we experienced his grace and love in a relational way? Paul is trying to bring them back to remember this. Because if they remember this, this changes everything. So in light of how we've learned Christ, Paul goes on to provide three commands for the Christian. And in the text, these, these are not verbs that are imperatives or commands in their grammatical structure, but they, they function that way in their force. And these three commands help direct us to no longer walk in the way of the world, but to rather walk in new life as a new person. And so these three commands are, are pretty simple. Put off, be renewed, put on. Put off, be renewed, put on. So for put off, he says this, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So here he says we are to put off, meaning to lay aside our old self. We are to lay aside that which is according to our former way of life, our behavior. And thank goodness, Paul, he's a realist. Because he realizes and tells us that our old self is going to keep showing up time and time again. Paul doesn't assume that just because we have become a Christian that our struggle with sin and the old self is going to be completely done away with. But we need to be warned that there are many forms of shallow Christianity that would lead one to believe that all our struggles will go away if we just believe in Christ. All our struggles will go away if we would just continue to exercise faith. All our struggles will go away now if you just have enough faith. And in that, as a Christian, we should certainly grow in our external actions and, and behaviorally. 
But in some ways, the Christian experience is, is different. It goes a different way. In some ways, our sin and our problems might actually intensify. And this feels backwards. It's like, I thought I was supposed to be freed and delivered from it. And we are. There's grace to be found there. But they might intensify simply because we, we become more aware, aware of our old self at work. We become more aware of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And that gap gets bigger and we feel the angst in our soul. We feel our depraved nature in our heart. And so the old self, it keeps coming back. In some ways it feels more, ugh, which Paul articulates later in Romans, right? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Deliverance is coming, and that's what God's calling has done. But something in the Christian life is frustrating. And we feel a tension here. We're caught in between two worlds, two realities, two selves. And as Christians, we find ourselves living in something that people have talked about is the already but not yet. There are certain realities secured for us in Christ that are true already, right now. Our adoption as sons and daughters, that is true. (laughs) Can't be changed. Our eternal life, that is secure. Can't be taken away. The indwelling of the Spirit, He is in our hearts and there to stay and to work and to fill us. So though these things are true, our sinful flesh, our way of thinking, our way of living has not been totally done away with. We are finite beings awaiting a new home, awaiting a new glorified body, awaiting a new or a non-compromised heart that delights ultimately in God, awaiting to truly be able to enjoy all the creation, all things in him. There are certain realities that are not yet. And they are coming one day. And what God is doing in this period of the already but not yet is he's growing and maturing us to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. He allows our sinful hearts and desires to remain in part so that we might learn and relearn, so that we might experience and re-experience his steadfast love, his grace, his mercy towards his children. And as we learn and relearn and experience, re-experience, that our longing, our hungering for righteousness and holiness would increase. As we learn and relearn, that our awareness, our sensitivity, our alertness to sin and darkness and alienation and hardness of heart and callousness and sensuality and greed and impurity, that that would lead us to a greater grieving and mourning and a, and a hatred of sin. God is growing desires in us that are going to be fully expressed in heaven one day. But the struggle right now is we've got to learn to grow in those desires. We've got to learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And if he were to just deliver us from that right now, we might miss out on growing that muscle of desire that can be later enjoyed and appreciated one day before God. Christian maturity is increasingly growing in the love of God's ways and the hatred of sin and that which is not aligned with him. So, when the old self shows up again, we are to put it off. We're to lay it aside. 
We are to allow grief and sorrow to set in as we see and experience the corrupted reality of the flesh and the deceitful desires of the old self that lead us astray. But in this, putting off of the old self isn't enough. And this leads us to the second command here, be renewed. It says, and you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And as you think about this first command, the first command comes in with a simple verb form that just calls us to put off. But if that's all we're left with, then it's not any different than any other moral command. Just put it off. Stop letting the old self, stop letting the old self ruin your life. Just stop it. Some of us are familiar with an old Mad TV comedy skit in which a counselor sits down with a lady who comes in with this irrational fear of being buried alive. And she goes on and she begins to tell about her experience that she just can't stop thinking about it. And he asks her, have you ever been buried alive? And she's like, no, you know. But she's like, I can't get it off my mind. So he asks, asks her a couple more questions and then he proceeds to share with her two words for her to incorporate into her life. Two words that if she remembers these two words and she's like, should I, should I write them down? He's like, no, I think you can remember two words. So he lets the tension builds and slightly leans across the desk and he says, stop it. Stop it. The comedy of the skit highlights a reality true to life. Cognitively, it should be pretty simple to just stop a certain behavior, right? Just stop doing it. Stop doing whatever you shouldn't do. If donuts are slowly killing me, and they are, I just need to stop it. Don't eat the donuts. Stop. But we all know that this is not how life works. Our problems are not merely cognitive. They are much deeper than that. And it is with this in mind that the second command calls for us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And at first glance, we see the word mind here, and we might be tempted to think, if I simply believe the right thing, then I can change. But what is not obvious is that this verb, to be renewed, is actually a passive verb. Meaning that the action of renewing our minds is not something that we can do independently. It is something that we are dependent on another for. We are a passive recipient in the renewal of our minds. Our greatest need is to be grieved of our old self such that we run straight to God asking him to renew our minds, to renew us in how we learned Christ. And this is something that God must do for us and we cannot do for ourselves. Granted, hear this, we must run to him. We have some responsibility here. We must come to him. But he is the only one who actively renews anyone who comes to him. As we come with a humble and contrite heart, grieved of our old self, we ask him to renew us. He will do that. And not only is this verb passive, but this verb is also in the present tense, which means that we are to continually be renewed. We are to return to Christ again and again and again. Christian maturity is the ability to run more quickly and desperately back to Christ. 
Not necessarily how perfectly you live your life on the first try. Sanctification and growth will come, yes, but it comes as we continually are renewed in Jesus. So what is it that needs to be renewed in the spirit of our minds? We are to be reminded again and again and again that we are no longer under control and influence, under the control and influence of the old self. Remember that this is not the most fundamental truth about us. The most fundamental truth is that we are objects of God's grace and mercy. We are adopted as his sons and daughters for his glory and for our joy. We are to remember the calling that God has placed upon us in Jesus. And it is only through this renewal of identity in Jesus that then we are able to approach this third command here. Put on. Verse 24, he says, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So once reminded and validated of of who we are in Christ, we can then put on the new self. We can then step in, walk into that reality of what God has proclaimed to be true about us. He's renewed our mind and our heart, and that we we can walk in that way as it's true. This language of put on is like that of putting on clothes. We are created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And we are to clothe ourselves in that ultimately through Christ. He is the true righteous and true holy one who provides all, our, all of our righteousness and holiness. But we are to step and live in that reality. And the put on command ultimately directs us to walk in the reality of the new self that is true about us. And what's unique about this new self? The new self is created after the likeness of God. So, on the one hand, all of humanity is created in the image and likeness of God, right? Everyone that's physically born into this earth is created in the image and likeness of God. But, on the other hand, not everyone is living that way. Not everyone, that's not actually true in the function of everyone's life. And we see that through that everyone who is physically created and born in this earth as an image bearer is, is actually, they are fallen, they are dead, they are guilty. And dead means dead, <laughs> hopeless. And in that, being born in the image of God is not enough for salvation. What we need in the end is a new self is being created again after the likeness of God. We are in need of a recreation. We're in need of a recreation on a spiritual level. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God made us alive together with Christ. The only way that we can walk in new life and put on the new self is through our relationship with Christ. And as we see Christ as he truly is, as we grieve of our sin and call upon him in faith, then we can be renewed and put on the new self. So what does it look like to be recreated in the likeness of God? To be recreated after the likeness of God means that we begin to embody true righteousness and holiness. In the end, only God is truly righteous and holy. Only God is perfect in all his ways. For us, this side of heaven, embodying true righteousness and holiness is not that we attain perfection and sinlessness in this life, though that's desired, 
Again, hopefully that's a longing. But true righteousness and holiness is embodied by a purity of heart in which the new self longs for right relationship with God and pursues that as our ultimate aim at all costs, to live rightly with him. Righteousness and holiness will be true of a Christian as they seek after God, continually amending and course-correcting our hearts and our lives along the way. And we need to start with the inner reality that then moves to the external reality. The Christian will no longer walk as the Gentiles, as the unbelieving world. Will we walk in weakness? For sure. Will we still be prone to sin and temptation? Yes. But in the, in the continual renewal as a son and daughter of the living God, we'll walk as David and ultimately Christ, as men and women after the heart of God. To put on a new self, we must remember how we have learned Christ and walk in that, and, uh, and walk in that identity. The new self is a work of God that only grows and matures as we walk in close relationship and proximity to Jesus. So may God give us hearts to be grieved of our former ways and to long for that renewal that we might walk as new people, as a new self. And as we're about to sing here, the last thing I want to kind of invite us here to is that part of the old self is that we must reject the tendency that we think we can bring about or pursue a new self apart from God. He is the only one who can do this and can make things new. And so, as we sing, some of us are, gonna, some of us are in need of repentance. We're in need of a, a restoration or a revival of our heart. And we're going to sing a song that provides some space for that, the one that we sang earlier, a song that leads us to the cross again and again and again. And so the first step to the new self is to be disgusted with the old self. And in that comes a surrender to Christ and the beauty of his calling. So as we sing, let me pray that God would work in our hearts and do that for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this um, reminder, Lord, of how we have learned you. Lord, would you stir up in our hearts Lord, just a remembrance of who you are, of what you've done for us, who you are to us right now in this moment through Christ. So, Lord, we ask that if there is any sinful ways, if there is any way that we are behaving not in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called us, Lord, would you bring that to our surface that we can repent of it, that we can be grieved and disgusted by it, and that, Lord, you would renew us, remind us of who we are in Christ Lord, that your spirit would draw near and minister to us, Lord, so affectionately. Help us to receive that, Lord, that we might put off the old self, that we might be renewed on you, and we might put, in the true, put on the true reality of who we are. Lord, you must do this. Would you draw our hearts to see you as you are, Lord, and to be conformed to your image, Lord, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org 
or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.